Hello and welcome to the Traveling Historian Podcast. My name is Casey and I am the Traveling Historian and today we are going to be talking about the Incan Empire, the South American Empire. Now for anyone who's new to our show, this is just a reminder that, you know, we're not going into a comprehensive look at every single detail, fact, and name that comes up in the entire Incan record because we would be here all day. What we're trying to do is look at, you know, an overall picture about the origins and eventual fall and legacy of the Incan Empire. Because, again, our objective is to make history fun and exciting. And most people, when they say what's boring about history, is the repetition of names, facts, and numbers all over the place. So we don't want to do that. But like I said, we are here to talk about the Incan Empire. Now, the original natives that would ultimately become the Inca migrated south from North America, where they originally came over the Bering Sea land bridge during the Ice Age that actually connected what is now Russia and Alaska. And eventually these people would migrate south and they would form what's known as the Andean civilization, the Andean being based off the Andes mountain range, which is where we will find the Inca, Peru, and all of those societies now. The Inca people formed as pastoralists in the 12th century, so in the 1100s. And origin stories, you know, come up with every single society, and they focus on several individuals being the first ones to kind of start the Incan civilization. And the kind of the most popular name that comes around is King Manco Capac, who ruled along with his siblings. Under his leadership, the Inca formed the Kingdom of Cusco, and starting in 1438, the Inca began to expand under the leadership of Sapa Inca and conquered an area larger than the 13 colonies would be in 1776. And this is all without horses and any of the other technology that was available to the 13 colonies hundreds of years later. So this is quite an impressive feat over difficult terrain added onto that. The Inca began its kingdom as a more centralized and organized state that operated under warlords. So it already has this you know, strong head start and we have evidence for its organization dating back to around 1200. Now, the Inca operated on a central planning model economy, meaning that the economy was dictated from the top down, and citizens of the empire were required to pay taxes through a barter system, labor, and military service. So essentially, they would say, okay, you have this to offer us, this is what you are going to pay us. If you are a farmer, they would say, okay, you are going to give us some grain or whatever you're producing. If you didn't have that, you could provide your own military service or your own labor. In return, the government offers security, food, emergency services, and agricultural products. So it's a pretty fair trade-off, essentially, for this system. Now, the original Inca ruler, Pachacuti, developed the Inca state into one that consisted of a central government and numerous provincial ones. As discussed earlier, the Andes Mountains are hard to navigate because they are a large series of mountain ranges. And normally, what we notice in civilizations that develop in mountains is that they can be broken up very easily. And so if you are a ruler that is trying to govern a large state that is consists of these large mountain ranges and valleys, setting up provincial governments that answer to a central government is extremely efficient, and it's the best way to do that. Pachacuti is also the Incan leader believed to have constructed Machu Picchu as either a family home, summer retreat, or an agricultural product. And Machu Picchu is probably, if you Google the Incan Empire or the Inca and Google images, that's probably the first thing that's going to show up. Not all the expansion was based on conquest, but rather careful studying of rival strengths and coaxing them into submitting to the Inca, usually by promising the nobles wealth and power. 
And this is a tried and true strategy because you don't want to waste manpower and resources waging wars if you don't have to. Promising the nobles who most of the time want to be nobles still, they want to have their wealth and their power, so they will... They will sell out their people pretty quickly most of the time. And this is a strategy that easily works for the Incas. If these leaders didn't surrender, if they were on the opposite side of the coin, either for their own pride or for their own vanity, said, no, we are not surrendering, then they would be conquered and killed, and their children would be re-educated by the Inca to rule their own people. Again, a very effective strategy by the Inca. Instead of appointing native Incan leaders to rule over a foreign people, it is much easier to not only re-educate the children to see the Inca as the superior people, but it's easier to have someone from your own society govern you than some outsider. It makes it a lot harder to antagonize that enemy if it's one of you. To organize this growing state, a vast road network was built. And again, we still don't have large livestock animals that we would commonly think of using these road networks early on like horses what the incan system relies on are runners and when i say runners i literally mean people running along these roads to transport news and orders from these governments to the people that needed them most population estimates range between 6 to 14 million people living in the incan empire but due to the purposeful destruction and translation loss of records that we have from the Incans, we can't be certain. And these updates and population figures for North and South America before the European conquest is always changing all the time. And there are estimates as far as 100 million people in North and South America. And we are discovering all the time that, especially within the Amazon, that there were far more advanced societies there than we previously thought. So that number could only go up. But still, the Incan Empire is ruling over a significant amount of people. The Incan Empire was composed of many cultural groups and languages, but relied on these things called quipas instead of writing. You may have seen these without really realizing what they are, and quipas are essentially knots in rope. And that's how the Inca translated and had writing. This was their form of nonverbal communication. At times, and especially for modern historians trying to translate these, it's extremely difficult, especially if their translation records were lost. The marriage age in the Inca Empire was around 20 for men and about 16 for women, and varies depending on the social classes. And actually, infants until age 3 were actually not identified by gender or name due to high mortality rates among infants. Essentially, wasn't worth it, as callous as that sounds, to go about naming and referring to an infant because chances are they might die. Incan religious myths were transmitted orally until the Spaniards started actually recording them, although it's debated if they were actually recorded on the quipas as we discussed earlier because the Spanish destroyed most of them that they came across, and so we actually don't know if they were being recorded on these quipas or not because the Spanish record them as being orally given. But also thanks to the Spanish, we don't know if that's true or not. Now, death in the afterlife focused on reincarnation and that death should not result from burning as it would remove vital force to complete afterlife rituals. So essentially, this idea that your spirit would have to undergo a certain number of tests in the afterlife, and that your energy from your spirit would be needed to complete these tests, and that burning a body would deplete this force, which would endanger your prospects of proper reincarnation in the afterlife. Nobility also practiced cranial deformation to shape the skull into a point. So as infants, if you don't know, our heads and our skulls aren't fully sealed together yet. If you ever look at a skull, you can see it almost looks like stitch marks that are along it. Those are actually all the different plates on your skull where they fuse together. So as an infant, 
these haven't been sealed together yet because in order to get out of the womb, the head essentially needs to form itself. Now, what the ink would do is they would place these infants' heads in between two boards of wood, tie them together, and leave them like that for some time, which would result in the skull forming in a conical shape. So it's a very physical way of being able to tell where someone came from. So you don't, someone could be in rags, but if you could see that cranial deformation in their skull, you would know, oh, this person was from high stock. This person's important, which again, would probably, which sounds very strange, but that was the way of doing things. That was the way that the Inca were able to tell apart and signal to everyone else who is important and who is not. It has to come up. Human sacrifice was practiced by the Incan empire. It's not as popularly known because that human sacrifice is primarily centered along Central America with the Aztecs and the Mayans in our popular thought. But the Incans also did so. And there was one instance in which 4,000 individuals uh, were sacrificed after the death of Huayna Capac in 1527. Most of the time what this would consist of is people being put to sleep, essentially, that they'd be put into almost a medically induced coma, for lack of a better term. And they'd be placed up on the mountains where they would freeze to death. But it would be painless because they were asleep. They wouldn't wake up. And this has actually resulted in us finding a lot of these mummified remains in perfect condition. Their clothes are also perfectly intact. Their hair is perfectly intact. Their skin is perfectly intact. People who have found them say they look just like they fell asleep just the day before. And while that's certainly creepy, it does speak to a different form of that belief than is practiced farther north in Central America. After the early expansion by the kingdom of Cusco in the early 1400s, the Inca were a growing empire. They were rapidly on the rise. And traditionally, the son of the ruler led the armies in battle and so Tupac Inca Yupanqui marched north in 1463 to do battle and expand the empire. He did this continuing as ruler uh, after his the death of his father in 1471 and we have Huayna the son of Tupac continued the conquests of neighboring kingdoms. At its height the empire had pushed into Bolivia, Argentina, and Chile and was only stopped due to determined resistance from the Mapuche, who are another one of these rival groups. That is no small feat, because that is an empire that spans almost the entire length of South America. And again, this is a time that the technology that would even make communication a little bit easier isn't around. It hasn't been introduced yet, and so this is still largely people walking on foot to do these, not only to transport messages, but to march their armies back and forth. It's all being done on foot because essentially the largest pack animal that the Inca have available to them are llamas and alpacas. Those don't make exactly great war mounts or good transportation vehicles, so it's all being done on foot, which makes this conquest even more impressive. But the empire reaches its limits into the Amazon around 1527. It doesn't get much headway there, but it still does try. And the size of the empire meant that a wide variety of cultures were working together. Again, the Inca, while trying to cement themselves with the upper class, as long as you essentially cooperate with their governance, they don't super care about you being one of them. Because if you essentially pay your taxes, they don't care. If you don't rebel against them, they don't care. And so it's really another example of the quality of the Incan leadership that they're able to bring together a wide variety of different cultures and linguistic groups and form them into a mostly cooperative empire, even if it is only under the Inca. With the arrival of Europeans in the New World, smallpox came with them and spread like wildfire. And this is a concept that we call virgin soil. And this means that a land has not been exposed 
to a certain infestation. And you've probably heard this time and time again about the New World having this experience with infectious diseases, and it's true. The Europeans have had smallpox just in the background, essentially, for generations, mostly because of their experience with livestock and different animals living in close quarters with them. And this is why it's important when we talk about the Inca not having access to these large pack animals because it essentially jeopardizes their immune system. That because they're not living in close proximity with the animals that Europeans were, like, you know, pigs and cows and different types of animals, they don't get exposed to as many of the diseases that can transfer between those animals and people. So the Europeans are largely immune to it, but the natives are not. And when a disease spreads into a totally unprotected population, it's going to decimate them. And in 1524, the Inca king Sapa Inca Juana Capac dies of smallpox while traveling to witness the Spanish in the north. And this is a stunning moment because that really was unheard of. And so when the king dies of this alien disease, it is, it's unexpected and it's quite horrifying. But this leaves his son and heir also being exposed to the disease who quickly dies after him. And now this leaves an issue of succession, which is completely unclear because the king and his immediate heir die. And two claimants emerge named Atahualpa and Huascar. Now the nobility in Cusco supported Huascar, while the north favored Atahualpa. Now, there are numerous defections that happen that go toward Atahualpa and the creation of a new capital in the north among his loyal population. So Atahualpa knows that the nobility and the wealth and the power essentially is in Cusco, and he needs to set himself up with a friendly base. And so that's what he does. And between 1531 and 1532, there are a number of battles that were fought between the two forces, with Atahualpa gradually gaining the advantage in the war. And in 1532, the armies met as the threat mounted for Cusco, but Huascar was defeated and actually captured by Atahualpa. Atahualpa had essentially won the war, and his army of 80,000 gathered at Cajamarca to await the Spanish arrival, who were sending dignitaries to meet with the Inca king. Now this is where, again, the Europeans come in. Francisco Pizarro, who is a Spanish conquistador, led an exploration mission south of Panama in 1526 and another one follows in 1529. So this is right during the middle of this Inca civil war, this tumultuous time in their society. So this is when he's starting to make his inroads into that region. And after discovering the Inca and their wealth, he traveled back to Spain, and he receives permission to conquer the new region and become its viceroy, essentially its ruler on behalf of the Spanish king and queen. And he returns in 1532 to find a weakened empire, which is fresh off of this civil war, and he leads 168 men, one cannon, and 27 horses into the Inca territory, mostly taking what he can off the land and talking his way out of these confrontations. Because if we remember, even after this civil war, Atahualpa is sitting in Cajamarca with 80,000 men. And so for Pizarro, who only has 168 men, Picking a fight, it isn't exactly in his best interest. And we are going to dismiss one of these popular myths that often comes up when talking about these encounters. The Inca would not have thought that these these new white men that were coming into the territory were gods. That is largely a myth that they would have se- they've never seen horses before, so they would have seen these strange beasts and been alarmed by them, but they would have seen that these people riding them were just people. So they wouldn't have been in awe of them thinking that they are gods and that they've come here to liberate them or usher in some divine providence or anything like that. 
that's largely a myth that is extrapolated later by Spanish sources and some Inca sources that describe how strange the Spanish site is because the equipment that they're using the mounts that they are using are completely unfamiliar to the Inca. The concept of these soldiers wearing all steel armor with these helmets and these steel weapons on these beasts that they've never seen before, while quite terrifying, doesn't lead them to believe that the Europeans are gods and by any means. Back to Pizarro, he leads his own forces to meet the Inca king Atahualpa at Cajamarca, and the negotiations with the Inca go sour due to translations concerns, because essentially what happens is quite the spectacle. Atahualpa sees the Spanish, and again, he's fresh off of his own victory, so he's, he's riding a high right now, and he has his soldiers come to meet the Spanish without their weapons. So when the Spanish arrive, they see this, this amazing war dance by the Inca, and what Atahualpa is trying to do essentially is intimidate the Spanish into being in awe of him, and to surrender to him because what does it say of him that he can defeat this alien force without even hurling a, a stone you know how that he is so powerful that he doesn't even have to lift a finger to defeat these alien invaders that he can just intimidate them into defeat that doesn't exactly sound smart <laughs> in knowing how history will unfold but Atahualpa certainly felt confident. And so the emissary for Pizarro is a Catholic priest. What this man does is he hands Atahualpa a Bible, a copy of the Bible, and basically demands of Atahualpa to surrender to, to God, essentially, and to see the Christian faith. Atahualpa has never seen a book before in his life because, again, as we spoke earlier, the Inca form of writing were the, the tied knots in rope. And so Atahualpa looks at the Bible, kind of runs his page, his hands through the pages, and means nothing to him. And so he tosses it back toward the, the priest and it hits the ground and is like, get this trash out of my face. I don't know what you're trying to tell me. And the priest sees this as a great affront to God and that he would desecrate a Bible in such a way and orders the Spanish troops to attack. And so the Spanish, who are fully armed for this confrontation, begin to cut down Inca soldiers in droves because the Inca don't have their weapons and they don't have armor. So because the Inca haven't processed steel yet, most of their soldiers are going to be just wearing cloth, cloth tunics, which are no defense against steel swords and spears. And it's this tumultuous moment where Pizarro leads Spanish soldiers in a beeline for Atahualpa, who is being held aloft on this litter. On essentially this platform being carried by servants below him and Pizarro's men start killing the servants underneath him and as the litter begins to fall there are other servants who rush in to try and hold him up above the Spanish but ultimately too many of them are killed and Pizarro reaches up and grabs Atahualpa and rips him off of the litter it's this very romanticized moment that there have been dozens of paintings depicting and for Atahualpa and the Incans this would have been horrifying to watch that their king would have been ripped off the litter that essentially elevated him above everyone else by these invaders and they take him captive because they've just secured the king of the empire that they are trying to conquer in one fell swoop. And after being held captive, Atahualpa offers to pay the Spanish enough gold to fill a room in which he's being held, and twice as much silver, that this is his offer, to Pizarro. And Pizarro accepts the offer, but after receiving the payment, keeps the king captive. He double-crosses him, uh, which should be no surprise to a European conquistador coming 
into the South American continent with the intent of conquering that he has no intent on letting his valuable peace go. And Atahualpa runs his course of usefulness to the Spanish. And in August of 1533, the next year, Atahualpa is executed by the Spanish via garroting, which if you don't know, is essentially strangulation. So the Spanish parade him through the streets and then publicly strangle him. And this isn't like a hanging where you drop someone down. It is where you are standing on a wooden platform and you are tied to a wooden post with a rope around your neck and someone tightens it via a screw in the back of your neck. So it is much, much worse than hanging, which is normally meant to be kind of quick and decisive. This is a slow, painful death for this king. And after the death of Atahualpa, this is seen as many as kind of the signaling the death of the Incan Empire. This is when most historians will put kind of that, that finishing date on it saying the Inca Empire ran from here to here. In 1533, when Atahualpa is executed is seen as many, this is the end. Now, Pizarro installs Manco Inca Yupanqui as ruler of the Inca to serve as a friendly ruler while they put down resistance elsewhere. So again, even though they've successfully killed Atahualpa, there's still very, very, very few Spanish soldiers there to try and keep the peace. And so ironically, employing a strategy that the Inca themselves had employed against other native tribes they had conquered, the Spanish put in place a friendly Inca ruler to rule in their stead. Now again, this Inca ruler is entirely subservient to the Spanish, but it's a friendly face, if you can call it that, for the Inca that are living underneath him. And trying to use this inner Spanish conflict to his advantage while the Spanish are trying to put down resistance. Manco kind of, he tries to, he takes Cusco in 1536 in an attempt to kind of overthrow the Spanish, but he quickly loses it back to the Spanish. Realizing he could not stand against the Spanish, he actually is able to flee into the mountains of Vilcambada and establishes a neo-Inca state. Now, him and his successors would actually rule here for 36 years, using it as a location to harass the Spanish and try and incite revolts against them. And it isn't actually until 1572 that the last Inca stronghold is captured, and Tupca Amaru, who is the Incan king at this time, is captured and executed, So, which is a pretty good feat that... They're able to last for about 40 years harassing the Spanish until they are taken out by the Spanish. And Spanish rule results in the systematic destruction of Inca culture, as we mentioned earlier, as the Spanish destroy almost any resemblance of Inca culture, any records that we could have used to look up population, organization, anything that would help historians later, the Spanish destroy. They burn them. They demolish them, anything that will give the Inca something to look forward to and to be inspired by the Spanish destroy because they are trying to assimilate and beat down the remaining Incan survivors so that way they will never resist Spanish rule. And this actually results in the deaths of up to 94% of the population of the former Incan Empire due to disease of these new Spanish invaders and being overworked by the Spanish. And in the resulting conquest, the Spanish had captured one of the largest silver mines in the world to enrich their empire. So the Spanish secured not only the defeat of one of the most powerful empires in the New World, but one of the most plentiful sources of resources they could ever come by. And this comes into a problem later on because essentially the Spanish infused the market with all this new money and so crashed their economy later on. But that's for a later time. 
so the Spanish are still happy about this discovery right now. And unfortunately for the Inca, the new Spanish administration was not keen on establishing itself as a benevolent power in South America, which should come, should come as a surprise to no one. <laughs> but disease and overworked, as mentioned earlier, result in devastating population loss among these native peoples. Spanish missionaries who saw the Inca religion and culture as an affront to God actively pursued and destroyed texts and other vestiges of that culture. And with the regards to immunities and people who die versus those who survive due to natural immunities, the idea among many missionaries at the time was that if these people were killed by diseases, that this was essentially God's judgment on these people, that if they died, then that clearly meant that they were sinners. Never mind the logical fallacy that comes that clearly God waited for them to come along (laughs) to see this for themselves. And that clearly the people who survived were the good people, which is horrifying. So the Spanish are very absolute in this destruction and in this mindset. And in addition to burning any types of written records, any vestiges of this culture, they will literally destroy the very rocks in which they were built on. Spanish cities and churches were built literally on top of or using the stone in which Inca temples and cities had used. And you can see the the remnants of this where you can go into the basement of some churches and important buildings from that time period, and they are literally built on top of these old Incan ruins because the Spanish wanted to cement their hold. And so one of the key tactics was to build churches on top of old Incan temples because people already associated that location with religious significance. And so if you put a church there, you already you're trying to connect in the people's mind that no, this is the new this is the new religion here. And so this the Spanish are very systematic in the way that they go about this. Many rena- remaining natives will resist the forced conversion and practice a syncretism version of Catholicism to preserve their own faith. And this syncretism is essentially a blending of local faith along with Christian faith in order to essentially hide the fact that you are still trying to worship your old gods. So this will mean depicting saints essentially in your own image, which is a way of worshiping old gods in basically in front of everyone else. So you are painting one of the saints to look like a native Incan god. And for the Spanish who are sitting there going, ah, they, they're worshiping the saint, clearly. The Incan are really praying to their, their original god or gods, I should say. And after the War of Independence, going all the way forward to 1826, The culture that emerges was a mix of many different ones that did not exist prior to that conquest. And this is when any Incan cultural vestiges that remain, both linguistically and culturally, are able to emerge safely now that the Spanish are gone. And Peru celebrates its heritage proudly to this modern day. And there are massive tourist destinations in Peru, like we mentioned before, Machu Picchu and others, which I would definitely recommend going to see. But the the legacy of the Inca is still felt today in modern day Peru. And it goes to show how strong this empire was, that it still has this lasting legacy to today, that no matter how much of it the Spanish tried to destroy, they can never get rid of all of it. And it says something about human spirit and ingenuity, that even with all that hate and all that power that the Spanish couldn't destroy all of it. That is where we are going to conclude this episode on the Incan Empire as a friendly thanks to everyone who is listening.
And as an exciting bit of news, I have actually started a Patreon page. If you go to patreon.com slash traveling historian, you will see the page there working on getting some special fun things for you guys who subscribe. Still working on that. So stay tuned. But thank you to everyone and we will see you next time.